If you Google the most trusted man in America, you'll find that your computer will locate sites related to our special guest today. Walter Cronkite, welcome to Radio Parallax. Well, thank you. Glad to be aboard. We're delighted to have you, sir. Well, how are you today? We're quite well out here in California. How are things with you? Well, the things are all right in California. The things are not burning or sliding or quaking or anything. The only thing we're putting up with is our governor. <laughs> right. Right, okay. Mr. Cronkite, in your 1996 autobiography, A Reporter's Life, you cited many remarkable discussions in your numerous interviews. Is there someone whom you did not interview but wished you had? You know, interestingly enough, one of the people I would like to have interviewed would have been Hitler. I would like very much to have tried to probe what really made that man tick. We had Mein Kampf, of course, that gave us some guidance, but uh, it left questions unanswered. I would like to really have had a chance to sit down with him, grate my teeth perhaps, but try to find out really how any individual could come to such a disastrous philosophy as that that he acquired. Does any interview or series of interviews that you did stand out in your mind? I suppose that the one that seemed to be of greatest interest and historical interest might have been the two interviews I did for the uh, the Kennedy-Nixon uh, competition in yes. 1960. I interviewed both of them uh, at length, an hour each, uh, in the course of the campaign. I think that as each of them responded to this first-person interview, which was rather uh, unusual at that time in the early stages of television. We forget how young television really is. Those interviews were most interesting, and I think probably about the most importance of any interviews I ever did. For the record, sir, our favorite was Fidel Castro's reply to your query as to why things are always so dilapidated in communist countries when he said, well, when people don't own things, they don't take care of them. That's right. I, I, I appreciate your recognizing that when I agree with you that, that as the single most interesting statement of all the interviews I've done, that probably uh, was the most surprising one. You've had the chance to take the measure of every occupant in the White House from Herbert Hoover on down. Does George W. Bush have your confidence? Well, now you're asking a very touchy political question. It's a, a question which involves a great deal of, uh, obviously, political choices, and uh, also it requires a great deal of explanation. You've asked me directly, what do I think of the present administration? I am deeply concerned about it. I was concerned about the previous four years, and I'm even more concerned now now that uh, he is not facing an election again in four years, he is more free, he feels at least, to project his philosophy of government and uh, of what uh, this country should be. 
and I find myself in basic, apparently, disagreement. I'm not sure entirely what he stands for in all these things, but from what I gather from his speeches, that uh, we are diametrically opposed on most of the major issues of the day. How would you describe your political perspective? I have uh, defined myself as a liberal, but I make a point that this does not necessarily mean a leftist. Uh, It may on times embrace the left side of the political spectrum, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. I take the dictionary version of a liberal of being one who is not particularly tied in one way or another to a cause or a belief, but makes up his or her own mind on the basis of the facts. That has been my philosophy through life. I am not a Democrat, but I am a liberal. My independent liberal would be my classification. Many of us reporters who have come up through the ranks of the police beat in our hometowns until we get into national politics. In our freshman years, we see the rough side of life. As young police reporters, we see the tragedy uh, that seems to stalk the people in our lower economic groups, uh, in their housing, in their, in their marriages, in their education, no problems in the fires that drive them out of their homes and take all of their possessions, the uh, gunfire in the streets of many of their downtrodden communities. We see all of that tragedy. And as a consequence, we're inclined to to associate with it, to sympathize with it at least. This is what I think makes us humanistic uh, liberals, not political liberals, but humanistic liberals. In an NPR commentary last August, you told how LBJ misled the nation and made a minor incident in the Gulf of Tonkin into a blank check for war in Vietnam. A supposed threat from weapons of mass destruction in Iraq turned out to be very wrong, too. Absolutely. Do you sense deception at its root? The people were certainly misled. Now, the question is whether the president was misled or not. I don't think that has been uh, totally settled yet. It's an issue which perhaps would require even some more examination, some more analysis as we go down through the years. But certainly the American public was was misled, and I think a rather phony precept led us into this war in Iraq. Do you foresee a quagmire in Iraq from a mobile enemy that's analogous in many ways to the Viet Cong? I definitely see a quagmire. I don't see how anybody cannot see a quagmire in uh, Iraq. We do not have a plan, apparently, for uh, eventual uh, departure from Iraq, leaving those people to run their own government. The administration admits it has no plan for that. It ducks behind the new philosophy that you don't want to tell them that we're thinking about leaving because that would destroy our credibility in the country and uh, would indeed perhaps inspire the counter forces there to hold on even longer. Uh, To my mind, I think that that this is another one of the erroneous 
if not phony, presentations put before us to explain the, the situation in Iraq. You were a war correspondent for the United Press in World War II, and you've expressed some strong resentments in your 1996 autobiography over the military's keeping reporters away from combat zones in Grenada, Panama, and in the first Gulf War. How do you see the current relationship between the military and reporters? Well, in uh, Iraq today, the uh, whole embedment of reporters I thought was a little bit dangerous. The individuals were picked for embedment in particular units uh, and were uh, limited to staying in those units. They could not, in other words, once they decided that that particular unit to which they were embedded was not in action, as happened to some of these poor correspondents who made all of the sacrifice to be there, and then suddenly found that they had pledged to stay uh, without changing, moving any elsewhere with units that were not really in very serious action. As a consequence, some of the television reporting particularly uh, was uh, rather useless. It was the effort of home offices to let a poor reporter who had gone to all the effort and the danger indeed of being in the lines of fire didn't have a story, so they'd put them on anyway. And we got a lot of explanations of how those lights over in the right were really moons and not fire and that kind of thing. Everybody did their best effort. Uh, But I think that uh, the idea of giving the commander of the unit a right of censorship, which I gather is the way that operated, certainly was a mistake. How did it work in World War II? In World War II, we had censorship, and I believe in censorship in wartime. In, among correspondents, uh, war correspondents. You can't by uh, print or radio or now by television, you cannot uh, certainly permit the media to reveal the size of our forces, the losses we've suffered, the kind of material we are committing to the battle. That's all military secrecy that uh, we, we shouldn't be entitled to, and, and the authorities have every right to say you can't print that or you can't broadcast that. That was the rule in World War II, and it worked very well. We were able to get our dispatches out with uh, the stories of how our troops were doing uh, with the modicum of censorship. As a young man, you interviewed Alf Landon, the GOP standard bearer, after being defeated by FDR. (laughs) Yeah. He scolded you for not asking more questions while you had his attention. He did indeed. I imagine it was much more common for interviewees to try and place restrictions on your conversations. Uh, There are rules of the game uh, that are always uh, imposed, and uh, they sometimes say, um, we're going to give you this interview, but we cannot talk about, well, let's just say Iraq. That would be a pretty ridiculous interview with a top official of government today. But they can set their limits, and within those limits, if you agree that you will accept those limits because you feel that you can still get a, uh, an adequate and informative and important interview without those particular subjects or those particular questions, why then uh, then you go ahead and accept those, uh, those conditions. I think the Times, which I think a great deal of, the New York Times, and that's my standard newspaper, it's my first newspaper, and 
for usually many mornings when I don't have time for everything. It's my only newspaper. I find in its columns occasionally, reportage that is, uh, the uh, correspondent will say, and if the paper prints, the de- declaration that such and such a subject was off uh, limits. That occurs occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally. You clearly enjoyed covering the moon race, Mr. Cronkite, and as a viewer, your enthusiasm was infectious. W- what did you find most inspirational about the race to the moon? It's the excitement of adventure. Uh, here is the ultimate adventure of our time that we were challenging the ability to get into space in the first place and then, of course, to do the ultimate, and that's land on that orb that we've all admired from songs and dances and romances through the years. We finally put men on that orb, an incredible feat. I can't imagine how we at any time would have dreamed that this would happen up to the time that Kennedy announced we're going to try it, and then we began to build the equipment for it. The man who replaced you, Dan Rather, is now stepping down. How do you view his tenure as CBS Anchorman? I assume he did well. He stayed in there for all those years, since 1980 to today. Uh, That exceeds my time by a year or two, or a year anyway, I think that's what Dan was clinging to, was the right to say that he was an anchor man on CBS News longer than any other correspondent. Uh, I was there 20 years or something, to find a little more, and uh, he's, he's exceeded that. I congratulate him on his ability to stay in there despite a lot of years of difficulty. Uh, he's now about to step down, and I hope we give him a happy farewell. CNN's Ted Turner said recently that Fox Television News was a propaganda voice of the Bush administration. What do you think of that statement? Well, I think it's Ted Turner's uh, privilege to say what he wants to say about uh, anything in the world. Uh, If your question is about what do I think about his saying it, that's my answer. Okay. Uh, If you ask me the next question, is it true or not? Since you haven't asked it, I won't answer it. (laughs) Well, let me correct that deficiency. Mr. Cronkite, do you think that's true? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Actually, Fox has got a uh, very good uh, uh, staff there running the show, and uh, I admire two or three of them who have been friends of mine through the news organization for a long time, the news organizations for a long time. But I do think that it's quite clear. Rupert Murdoch he is a known conservative, quite, quite an f- outspoken conservative, a uh, rightist, and uh, as such, uh, I would not doubt that his broadcasting network, which he's made quite uh, successful over the years, is a shadow of his uh, political beliefs. Mr. Crockett, we, we have many fine quotes from you that we're going to place in this program, but, but we confess that our favorite quote is about you, coming from your wife Betsy a few years back. Mm-hmm. I'd like to put that in the show where this, this is such I, a great I, quote. I think She's, I know where this one's going. Yes. Er, Errol Flynn died on a 70-foot boat with a 17-year-old girl. Walter's always wanted to go that way, but he's going to have to settle for a 17-footer with a 70-year-old. I'm afraid that's an exact quotation. 
That's exactly what she said to me uh, with uh, that kind of happy smile she had when she pinned me to the wall. (laughs) Well, would you please give your wife, Betsy, our best, sir? I certainly shall, and she will appreciate it coming from such a distinguished group as yours. Walter Cronkite, thank you so much for taking the time to join our Northern California listeners here on Radio Parallax. Uh, I hope I've satisfied you in the time we've had. You certainly have. Okay, great. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That about does it for today's program. On the next two programs, which will take place on Christmas and New Year's Eve, we're going to try and keep it a little lighter. Our Christmas show will tend to focus on some very interesting science topics that arose in this year. And for New Year's Eve, I think we'll look back at the year in general. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Yes, the Edward McMillan. Radio Parallax signing off. We'll see you next week at the same time.